Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and those that did not like The Last Jedi are wrong. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I have become a remarkably adept changer of diapers. Professional development should not be restricted to the workday. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking a Scottish import, Skull Splitter Ale of the Orkney Brewing Company. We've been sitting on this one for a little while. Uh, I'm excited to get around to it because I have fond memories of this beer from uh, my more youthful days. It is a lighter color than what we normally pour, so I'm initially on edge here. So this month's topic is differentiation, and this is actually coming from some observation of community discussion that's going on outside of uh, our uh, our core community. There's a colleague of mine out in Western Kansas, and early on this month he shared an article on his social media account uh, called "Differentiation Doesn't Work." It's an opinion piece that was published in Education Week a couple of years ago. Uh, is in uh, January of 2015. Uh, "Differentiation Doesn't Work" is by James Delisley. I don't know if that dosely is my best attempt, uh, but it's a it's a pretty inflammatory article. Even in the editor's note now, uh, it says it, it got a lot of response. There's a lot of readers with impassioned comments. There's even a response piece uh, by Caroline Tomlinson. Differentiation does in fact work. So it was a really um, it was uh, it sparked a really lively and passionate discussion. As did uh, my colleagues' post on social media even this past month. So this article is a couple years old. Still got strong response from educators on both sides of the discussion. And so it prompted me to think there are, there's a place for further discussion. And what do we know since then? January 2015 is several years ago. So our goal this month is to take a fresh look at differentiation and see if there's maybe not some new comments coming out of the field since this debate occurred a couple of years ago. So to that end, we looked at uh, an article called Contested Knowledge a critical review of the concept of differentiation in teaching and learning uh, by Sasha Taylor, uh, published in the Warwick Journal of Education. This article is a synthesis piece of lots of other published works, and the abstract sort of acknowledges the state of contention, being that differentiation is complex uh, and potentially counterproductive. It recognizes that as the current state of discussion. There was, a, there was a statement that I highlighted in that abstract that I think is important in all of this. And differentiation means different things to different people. So in many cases, this debate is in part the result of a disconnect between both sides arguing on points not in alignment with each other. That disconnect means that if differentiation has been done poorly, it, can, it leads to greater inequality in the classroom, which is the opposite of its intended purpose, which I think matters. So... I want to start with what is differentiation because that, that disconnect exists and we're not always talking about the same thing. I believe their proposed intentional definition for differentiation is meeting the learning needs of each individual student in a classroom. That is a, that is a great definition. The problem is that it is broad, it is complex, and the definition doesn't, doesn't, is not sufficient for helping a teacher achieve that. Yeah, I can't hear that and say, okay, and then go do it. 
Uh, and I think I even take issue with your word choice in, in one spot there in the middle. Um, not everybody means in a classroom. Meeting the individual needs of a learner, some people mean in a classroom, but a great number of people mean in a building or in a district. And that has some meaningful differences in how we tackle it. If you're not limiting yourself to a single classroom, that's going to change what you're doing at a policy level. And that happens. That is going on. I operate from a position that teachers need to be very strongly philosophically grounded and that their practice should be an attempt to achieve those philosophical goals. And so um, for me, it is, I'm, I'm aligned and, and, and happy with that particular definition that differentiation is meeting the learning needs of the students in my classroom because I, that's where I have my agency so I'm going to allow myself to operate within that milieu. I don't like differentiation, I don't like the sort of operative perspective of what differentiation means. I didn't have a lesson and then differentiate it this way for this student or that way for this other student. I didn't have an assessment and then differentiate it this way for this student and that way for that student. So it's not a thing that I do to my lessons. I do not differentiate necessarily my lessons, nor do I differentiate the curricula for my students. It is not a tool for the classroom, but instead sort of a philosophical recognition that teachers can only support a student based on that student's knowledge and that student's skills and that student's experiences. So what does it mean for my classroom? It means that I need to often and ardently assess where my students are regarding their knowledge, their skills, and experiences, and then respond to that with another experience that they need to help grow those things in themselves. So responsive teaching is what I think differentiation is. And that's distinct from there's another term, and it usually comes up from uh, like policymakers or administrators. Is in the paper it's referenced to uh, Turwell, which is something down in the bibliography. Uh, on the other hand, Turwell refers to differentiation as streaming, tracking, or grouping students based on ability. That's at the bottom of page 37, and that is, I think, in direct conflict with what's in the best interest of students. And that's based on some of the research we've discussed here in previous episodes, where heterogeneous classrooms lead to better learning for all the students in our classrooms. If you narrow the window of who's sitting in a particular classroom, you're both excluding people who should be there who aren't. You're hurting people who are there but shouldn't be. And both, there's going to be a non-zero number of both of those students because there's limitations to our institutions and our ability to track students. Not to mention the fact that you're narrowing the window of perspective and experience means that you're cheapening, you're making more shallow the experiences and the discussions and the conversations that can be had by everybody who's in that room, regardless of whether they should be or should not be. So differentiation is not tracking for me. I, tracking is inappropriate. And not only is it not in alignment with the word differentiation, but it's not in alignment with best practice in general. So I want to just categorically say we are not talking about tracking. I think that that tracking, whether that be tracking students into different courses or tracking students into different classrooms or even tracking students into different specific groups within a classroom, even so all of that, I think, comes from a misconception regarding what differentiation is. We should not be targeting the median in our classroom with a generic set of experiences and then edit those experiences for other classrooms. That one is... To, first of all, that is 
foundationally uh, predicated on uh, the misconception of linear uh, curricular delivery as an optimal way to teach students. Two, it puts an undue burden of work, which is re referenced several times during this paper, on the teacher, that instead of making one lesson, you're making 25 or 30. Uh, and so how do you solve that problem? Well, you shoot for the center. You group your students, and then instead of making 30 lessons, you know only need to make four or five. Um, and so then it becomes a more manageable workload. So if you have the misconception that differentiation is you creating different lessons for for your, your groups of students, well then by grouping them, you can target whatever the medians of the groups are, and it appears that you have uh, more effectively attempted to implement this fallacious practice. And that's actually, the, we're retreading ground that has been put on the record already. One of my preferred accounts of this argument comes from Lisa Westman. She runs a blog at lisawestman.com is the place where she talks about uh, both that original article by Delisley and then offers her own comments. And she's saying almost exactly the same thing of he's not wrong if you accept his premises. So his premise of I need to stand up and lecture and this lecture is inappropriate for most students in my classroom, but it's unwieldy for me to create 29 unique lectures. So that argument is internally consistent. All of that is true. The answer is not stop trying to differentiate. The answer is stop lecturing. Like the answer is you're you're right, but that's not the right. You shouldn't have that problem to begin with. You should be leaving that playing field and go play a different sport. Like, don't do that anymore. And so I think if we get back to the original underlying problem of growing schema and developing, uh, providing open experiences for students to explore, this conversation of differentiation takes on a completely different tone because I'm not trying to identify what any individual student needs right this second. I'm trying to provide a rich space for them to make explorations and collect observations and start trying to build meaning, all of which is something the students do for themselves. And if I'm not trying to do that for them, then it becomes a much more manageable process in the classroom. Differentiation uh, meeting the needs of, of, of our students individually is about letting them explore their schema and seek coherence in whatever skill or concepts are targeted as, as objectives. So we're not trying, we should not be targeting the median and then edit that process for each student, but instead create and offer a process that is itself flexible to the students. We should be asking ourselves and our students and they should be asking themselves, what do they need to get from here to there? Uh, and so you have to propose, you got to let them know where the there is and then encourage their exploration of where they are. And that's hard. How do I put any of that into actual teacher behaviors or promoting actual student behaviors? And that's one of the biggest problems associated with differentiation is... All of that is come with, there's some vocabulary that was in one of our references that I really liked. There's explicit knowledge and there's tacit knowledge. And a lot of the folks who do differentiation really well comes from a tacit understanding of uh, extracting information from the people that they're supporting and then responding to it. But all that, the tacit nature of that knowledge means it's very hard to vocalize. It's very hard to uh, provide instruction for or to provide discourse on. And so when I say go be responsive, that means specific things to me, but all too often, 
I can't communicate those things effectively to anyone else, and especially for the folks in management positions or in training positions or on Twitter, people who say, go be responsive, if we don't provide any more concrete guidance than that, all we're doing is setting up the haves and the have-nots of teachers who say, everybody tells me to differentiate, nobody tells me what that means, am I just stupid or is this garbage? And either one of those conclusions are bad. There was something uh, in there that I found to be satisfying, which was by identifying the errors in student work, the teacher can guide the student to connect the elements of practice that already exist in their repertoire or to draw on their previous performances. In this context, the ability of the teacher to act spontaneously espouses creativity and innovation, which are the bedrock of differentiation in teaching and learning. So. What are the core tenets of differentiation? Providing feedback, teaching them where they are at, and helping them build their own schema using their own knowledge and experiences. So for me, what does that mean mechanically in a classroom? That means, one, you got to be on your feedback game. There's a lot of different ways to do that. But if feedback is a tool to help them improve, then that feedback should not be consistently associated with summative assessments. And I'm going to go even further than that. There's a difference between showing a student where they are and showing a student where they are not. Those are two different things, and it happens both directions. So if I offer a student a one-question, multiple-choice exit ticket, and they fill it out, and they have gotten it wrong, they know they are not where they need to be. That does not give them any information about where they are. So all I walk out knowing is I got a problem, which is distinct from letting them see what they do know so they can start to build a path between where they are and where they are not. And the opposite is also true. If we're doing a class presentation and a group does well, and so we mark all top marks all the way down my rubric, all we are telling them is you are not at a foundational level. But we have not told them where they are. And so they don't know how to continue growing. And the, and the result is boredom, or the result is disengagement, or the result is a development of a fixed mindset. And all those things are terrible. Uh, there's a, a particular example I really enjoyed, and maybe someday one of the students will listen to this. I was invited to come back and witness and be in the audience for a presentation from some former students about a week ago for an end-of-semester presentation. I went and sat in on the presentation, and they crushed it. It was visible. They even told us. We spent nights and weekends working on this. We dumped so much time and effort into it, and they did really, really good work. They spent about twice as long as any other group uh, giving their presentation. They were articulate. They were uh, insightful. The quality of their product they generated was excellent. They'd gone above and beyond some of the expectations. And do you know what I did during the question and answer time? I gave them 100% critique. I found things that they need to do better and things that they hadn't considered yet because they know that they did really well. They know that they're not at a foundational level. So if we just say, hmm, good job, that doesn't honor the time and energy they put into it. So we've got to show them what's next. Are they ready to go be hired by some marketing firm? Can they go be practicing uh, pharmaceutical chemists? No. Then tell them what's next. You have got to focus on finding a way to tell every student, the bottom, the median, and the top, what's next. And so for me, every single scoring guide and rubric includes 
every single milestone of development as far as I possibly imagine any group could possibly get, whether or not it's associated with top marks in my course. So I might say that the third box is 100% for my class, but there are six boxes because I anticipate that some groups are going to go far beyond that foundational level. And I want to make sure that I have space to give meaningful feedback to every single group, irrespective of what they might earn for marks as a summative score on that project. As feedback and guidance is a critical component of differentiation, one can still fall into the trap that this now means that I have to collect 30 pieces of work on a daily basis from all of my students, provide feedback on all of that work. And you can still get into the perspective that, okay, I'm, I'm feedback-centered or I'm feedback, uh, I've, I've taken that as a component of my classroom, uh, but I'm still doing way too much work that is feasible. We do not need to be, in fact, should not be, the only feedback providers in a classroom space. Students need feedback is not the same as I must give feedback. Right. So in a differentiated environment where students need feedback, you can use your judgment to have that feedback occur in many ways. You can uh, uh, collect work, provide individual feedback, and return it to students. You can have frequent uh, verbal interactions with a variety of students. You can have you can have group assignments where students work together as a group and then report as a group and then provide feedback to that group. You can have individual students uh, pair with each other. You can have individual students get classroom feedback from the rest of the class. Uh, in fact, keeping that that feedback source flexible and multifaceted is a a valuable component of differentiation because it lets you direct the classroom as opposed to micromanage the classroom and it allows students opportunities to buy in to not only uh, their own development but interact with each other so that their contributions to the learning experience are valuable amongst each other. The critique that I felt was the most valuable in this article section on the contestations of differentiation was the relative absence of quantifiable measures of the benefit of differentiation. And I think that merits consideration because increases in student motivation, increase in student gains uh, are all largely, at least to my knowledge, anecdotal. And I think that, that matters, that, that deserves some consideration because if all of these things are just the feel goods and we're not yielding concrete benefits from students, then we, at the very least, have to be above table about that. One of the challenges of measuring and quantifying the benefits or effects of differentiation is that measuring or quantifying the effects of anything in education is already super challenging. Whew. So we're trying to, you know, uh, dissect out this single effect, which means we have to learn ways to control for many factors, which were referenced, confounding factors referenced in this article, including social class, socioeconomic class, gender, and culture, all of which influence how a student interacts in an educational environment. So one of the complexities is that we are still uh, exploring how to measure the effects of those confounding variables before we can say, okay, now that we can isolate those, let's do differentiation. But if you eliminate 
some of the faulty assumptions that are some of the easiest opponents for, argue, for arguments against differentiation, and you talk about being responsive to your students in the moment. You talk about constructing meaningful schema to each student that connect with their individualized experience. And you start to work with all of the research that supports collaborative learning and inquiry learning and schema construction. You get to the point where differentiation is at least as good as not differentiation. So then the question is just the efficient use of resources. And I think that it can be done effectively without creating Lift 30 lesson plans. I think that's, that's a big takeaway should of this particular segment is... Differentiation is not about making 30 lesson plans. It's about students being able to be responsive to what they need, what they want to know in each individual moment. And honestly, even with the most heterogeneous classrooms, there's only going to be a handful of different developmental milestones that are represented by nearly all of the students in a particular group. And so if I provide this is the four meaningful milestones that you might be aspiring to each individual student in my classroom, you might be at a, you might be a little further at B, you might be all the way up at C, and that's it. And then let, give them space to start making choices and explorations. I think students can identify for themselves what's appropriate a lot of the time. I don't think that we need to make this a teacher-centered conversation. The takeaway is find ways to let students exercise authority and autonomy so that they can be responsive to what they need. This is not an earth-shattering groundbreaking statement uh, Vygotsky published in 1978 that classrooms should be responsive to meeting the needs of students and scaffold the students to their own growth instead of making a classroom focused or driven uh, by a particular pace of a curriculum. That was published in 78. So, and it was referenced in this paper, like here. Yeah. So this is not new ideas. Uh, one of the things recently uh, that has sort of been explored in my district is project-based learning. And then, oh, by, I by no means am any expert in progress, I'm sorry, project-based learning. Those of you that are exploring that can see a lot of opportunities for differentiation intrinsically a part of the project-based learning paradigm. Uh, you have some objectives for the students. The students get to make selections about the topic and their presentation, and then they themselves have to discover what they are going to do to develop those objectives or present those objectives or, or achieve those objectives. And they get to drive themselves through that process, and you are there available in the classroom to respond to their needs when they say, hey, we're stuck at this point. What do we need to do or how, where do we need to go to this? And then you can respond to those students as they make that journey. So. Differentiation can be applied to many models. Many classroom models can have can respond to that core feedback of being a responsive teacher to guide students as they address their needs. So, what are our takeaways from this article? I feel that teachers should solidify their philosophical purpose of differentiation. If differentiation is just a nebulous word that doesn't really mean anything to you, you're not going to be able to effectively address that in your classroom. So you need to decide what it means to you. For me, it is recognition that teachers can only support a student based on the student's knowledge and skills and experiences. So I have got to consistently probe and provide feedback to help those individual students. That's what I think you should do. Two, administrators should provide framework for teachers 
And this is this is uh, something that we didn't really get to in our discussion, but administrators should provide professional development opportunities for teachers about the nuts and bolts of responsive differentiation. They should give teachers the opportunity to observe others' implementation of differentiation in other classrooms and provide opportunities for teachers to give and receive feedback regarding their differentiation practices and the differentiation practices of their peers. Uh, the article references that support for teachers and that explicit training for teachers. Uh, so if I'm just a boots on the ground teacher and I have one classroom and I don't get to make those policy decisions, but what can I do to be responsive? It is about getting out of the limelight. You, you can't be the center of your classroom. You have to make the students the center of what they're doing. And that is talking about things like uh, PBLs, Project Phenomenon, Problem-Based Learning, Inquiry Experiences, Schema Construction. It, it has to be making the students the focus so they can be responsive to what they need because you're right, you alone cannot be the center of the classroom and deliver 30 different lessons. Those two things can't coexist. So if you're one teacher in the classroom and you decide that you do want to be responsive to the needs of your students, then you must not be the center of your classroom anymore every day, all the time. You cannot be at the center. If you're in the center, you're not differentiating. Full stop. Can't be happening. If you're an administrator, I agree with your shoulds. I'm going to add another one. From a policy standpoint, from a culture standpoint, differentiation means responsiveness, and responsiveness means there's going to be a difference in what I do and what my colleagues do, which means there has to be a space for my individual teachers to exercise judgment and autonomy. And so you cannot permit or promote top-down control of what your teachers in the department are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. You, you can't do that because then they can't respond to what they see on the ground. You have to allow them to exercise their own judgment for what their students need, and that's going to mean turning over control of what's going on in their classroom to them to a meaningful extent. You have to provide your teachers autonomy, and teachers on the ground have to demand autonomy and then exercise it and exercise their judgment when they have it. Because if top-down control is your goal, they cannot be responding to what they see underneath them. Now we do other stuff. So we're transitioning to our content segment here, and I'm excited to be returning to mathematics. And this one has been a challenging piece of reading for me, and I think it may have been for you as well, because we're looking at a neuroimage study that's looking at what happens inside students' brains when they solve math problems in different ways. And I think that we can use some of this to inform how we instruct our students to tackle problems as they're developing initial competencies. So the particular paper is when math operations have visuospatial meanings versus purely symbolic definitions, which solving stages and brain regions are affected. This is in neuroimage and it's by and it's by Pike, Fincham, and Anderson. So this was a uh, this was in the synthesis, this was an actual uh, experiment treatment group study. Uh, in a nutshell, they made up a math operation, they taught it in two different ways, and then they looked at some brains. So, getting a little more into that, they took a hundred, they started with 101 college students, uh, they ended up uh, whittling it down to 80, because of various reasons they had to throw some participants out, and they presented them 
uh, they did this over two days. Day one, they were training those participants in this new math operation. And in the second day, they tested them under their uh, application of this new math operation while they took some pictures of their brains. Now, the major treatment between these two groups was how they were presented the application of this operation and the feedback that re they received uh, regarding their use of this operation. Both of those were tailored to either be visuospatial or symbolic. So what is the difference between those two is something that we need to outline before we proceed with this, uh, this, this paper. There are two things that are common complaints associated with trying to understand what's happening in education. And one of the biggest ones is that the brain is so often a black box. We don't know when students understand. We don't know what they're thinking. This study is about visualizing what they're thinking from moment to moment as they process these problems. So there is one option. I want to do something else. Okay. I want to, uh, I want the audience to play along with us, and I want you to play along too. Great. So I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to give you a math problem. I want you to think about it. And then uh, we'll talk about what was happening there. How do you solve the problem 7 plus 3? Now, the question is, what was happening in your head during that time? Because uh, they're proposing that there's kind of two different possibilities for how that can play out. So, Mr. Ralph, what was going on in your head when I asked you to solve the problem 7 plus 3? Uh, so, self-reported results are different from externally measured results, but what I actually felt myself doing was seven, I literally see the the written numeral seven, and I see the written numeral three, and then they literally merge together, and seven and three feel like they fit together really well, like they feel like they make a circle, and that circle looks like ten, and then I want to say ten. That is an excellent example of the symbolic reasoning behind solving that problem. That was, you saw the number 7, it has a meaning. You saw the plus sign, it has a meaning. You saw the 3, it has a meaning. And you know the relationship between them, and that that relationship is 10. And that you, what was happening in his head, he didn't actually need to understand what 7 means or what 3 means. He did understand what plus meant, and he, he actually visually represented what plus meant in his head to give us 10. But largely, he was operating from a symbolic perspective. The visuospatial perspective is more physically translating that into a phenomenon in your head. If you saw three dots and a group of seven dots, and then, you and then they created one group, and you had ten dots, then you, if you saw that, then you were operating from a more visual-spatial perspective of that problem. Mental number line construction is a really important developmental step in understanding of math as a global concept. So, they had these students, and they presented a new operation in math. Now, this operation was represented as... These two, actually, they had two operations, up arrow and down arrow. And I don't care about what the nitty-gritty of those operations were. However, uh, the two groups were presented information about those operations in different ways. Some students are going to learn this new operation, up arrow or down arrow, from a algorithmic, symbolic perspective. They will be taught the formula that these symbols represent, and they will practice executing that formula. 
other students are taught, rather, what the relationship represents uh, visually. There are shapes and areas associated with this uh, relationship, and so they have pictures and, and uh, well, images directly associated in their problem. So when they are presenting the information, they are presented it in images, and when they solve the information, they respond with images uh, in order to uh, get their final calculation. Those two groups work on their respective process for the first day, and in the second day, they come back, they are given new problems regarding uh, those processes, and they are hooked up to an MRI machine, and we look at their brain while they're solving the problems. As a whole, they didn't find that there was any significant differences from one problem to the next, regardless of how you solve it. Uh, in this isolated instance, and that's consistent with previous research, right, is they've measured, do they do it any faster, do they do it any more accurately, depending on which treatment they were given, and the answer is no, they, they're pretty similar. So, who cares? Uh, if our end goal is just solve the problem as quickly as possible, as accurately as possible, it does not matter. Right, but that's not our goal. So? And when I say our, I'm talking about educators. I'm talking about you and me, not even, not even specifically the researchers. So um, they wanted to delve into smaller pieces, smaller bits of that solving process. So were there meaningful differences from step to step of those processes? For this model, they proposed four stages of problem solving. One, encoding the problem, planning, compute, and response. So ENCODE is taking in the information, planning is deciding how we're going to solve this problem, computing is actually doing the work of solving the problem, and responding is reporting the information regarding the solution. There were differences in um, brain regions activated in the first three of the four stages. Different parts of the brain light up, but... I've got a should. I think that there's something to draw from that. I, I want to go there. The more parts of your brain that you activate, the more robust and understanding and persistent and consistent an understanding of a topic will be. Which means, if our goal is to just get them to solve them as quickly as possible tomorrow, choose one, drill it, stick with it, get it done. Yeah, flip a coin, because they are not different. But if I want them to understand it next year, if I want them to develop uh, competency that is robust over time and applicable to greater growth in the future, then I need to activate as much of that brain as I can. So in my classroom, I need to res I need to provide both models. If the visuospatial model, the visuospatial representative representation, adds the same plus more regions, these linguistic regions, uh -huh. then it's clearly the better choice. Uh -huh. But if it if it has these regions, it has more regions, but is missing some of the regions oh, uh, represented in the other, then we need to do both. We need to get that idea in as many parts of their brain as possible. Uh, accurate. So in the second stage, there are more there are more clusters in the symbolic treatment than the visuospatial. So that's in the So more regions of more regions are used in visual spatially. But they are different because there are some regions that are specifically yeah. involved in planning. Right. And so uh, visual spatial is the pre preference of the two, but optimal is both. Optimal is an asymmetric deployment of both. Yes.
which has a benefit from an educational standpoint because each individual lesson and experience is nested within a larger curriculum and larger educational goals. So visual spatial um, techniques activate more regions of the brain, especially during the encode and computation steps, but there are regions of the brain that only activate during the symbolic stages. So we are going to best serve our students if we train them in both even though we should have a greater representation of the visuospatial methods versus the symbolic methods, because we are better off when we activate more regions of the brain than fewer as educators. We should give them those visual representations and practice with the visual representations, uh, and then we should do some symbolic representations, and then we should do more visual representations. We don't graduate from visual representations to symbolic. We mostly live with visual representations and then dance between the two. That's consistent with how, what I expected to be a takeaway from all of this. So that's what you should do <laughs> based on brain pictures of 24-year-olds doing complex algebra. This is better with all of you. Our third segment today is the recently minted return of the peer review because all of you have written back in. We've got a number of comments that demand discussion, so here we go. Discussion point number one is actually a piece of feedback that I got from a student of mine who listened to episode 001, so get in the Wayback Machine because this was the first episode that we put on tape. He called us unorganized. He said, this show is unorganized. How do you feel about that? Well, he was talking about 001, so I am not, uh, I'm not in a position to disagree with him. In fact, we have changed the organization of the show today uh, for this very episode. So we are definitely still in flux there, and I think that that feedback is on point. Uh, what he actually said is that it seems a bit unorganized, which is exciting, because I know that when I'm a professional like these two, I won't have all of my things together. And I think that he's right. It's not a critique that says this should all be in lockstep. It's actually consistent with some of our discussion in the earlier segment of we need to be responsive to what's going on with our participants. And even though you're not a student of mine, Mr. Woodruff, we are definitely talking with one another. You're teaching me some things. And I hope that I'm showing you a few things as well. And so if I plan all of my remarks ahead of time, I am necessarily not listening and responding to you. And that's a mistake. And so I actually wear that bit of unorganized as a badge of honor, like, you better believe it, man. I have no idea what this is going to look like ahead of time. As good teaching is organic and responsive, uh, I'm glad that this, this student uh, appreciated the show as being uh, a little bit organic. Okay, second piece of mail. We actually, I was super excited about this one because we heard back from the authors of one of the papers that we discussed last, uh, last month. Dr. Spector-Levy and Dr. Yifrock uh, wrote a lengthy response that they posted on the episode for 010. What did you take away from the author's comments from last month? Uh, their comments were very satisfying for me because one of the things that I took with me as I was walking away from that episode was that there wasn't a clear uh, message for teachers or administrators about the complexities of education research. In general, and then in terms of differentiation specifically, what are the shoulds? And we didn't really communicate that or, or discuss that. We just kind of discussed that it was complicated, uh, and that was dissatisfying for me. So their response directly with laser focus 
identified what they felt the shoulds were. And I, I thought that that comment was uh, valuable for that purpose. Thank you for covering and, and crystallizing what we didn't. And I think, uh, I think the best piece of that is that educational policymakers and school management should devote greater attention to teacher agency and should devote greater resources to providing professional training and appropriate instructional materials and to establishing frameworks for meaningful cooperation between the science teachers and special education staff. I think that's on point. We, uh, we had some what I thought were productive beginnings of conversation, but we could do better. And I actually, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what the next publication is going to be from both of those researchers. And they even made some allusions to what that's going to look like because they are continuing to do work down there uh, in uh, in Israel where they're doing their research. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the next piece is going to be from them. Something exciting about their continuing research is that it addresses an issue uh pertinent to today's episode. Specifically, what should teachers be doing in a classroom to differentiate for a complex student body? They are providing workshops specifically to help teachers meet those goals and then measuring the efficacy of those workshop on certain teacher attitudes. So I look forward to uh, merging those two uh, discussions when they get that paper out. Our last piece of feedback is a sequence of comments that came from Brad Williamson on, again, episode 010, and he observed some things that we didn't fully consider. We focused on a lot of the more uh, traditional measures that were available, and even though we can aggregate bigger data sets, there are some more emergent forms of feedback that we can derive from online and blended communities that we didn't really discuss. What was it he pointed out that we needed to consider? This is a quote that he referenced that was originally in the, the paper of, of discussion. Data science is poised to have a substantial influence on the understanding of learning in online and blended learning environments. We did not discuss feedback or efficacy or consequence or impact of those particular systems, which uh, this new type of data gathering is going to give us more conclusions about. So there are things like analytics on websites, uh, time spent on different questions, and uh, attention direction. There are some really precise and really fine levels of measurement that we can take once we move on to a digital space that are just flat not available in the less connected classroom. I, I am actually anticipating the data that he referenced with eagerness because I am a, I am a skeptic as to the benefits and efficacy of online learning environments. So I, I will, I look forward to be vindicated or crushed in my perspective by the uh, consequences of this new uh, data potential. Uh, yeah, I don't know much about how actionable it's going to be, but I am going to be curious to see how this interacts with some of the data that we considered in 004. We were talking about the impact of communication technology and screens in particular, because there's going to be a cost in having access to that kind of information. So if a student can do their reading online, and so I can know exactly where they're spending the most time, and thus I can infer where they're having the greatest struggle in that reading, but I know that overall the amount of struggle that they're having is diminished because of the medium on which they're doing the reading can I justify having access to that information like we don't know because we don't have that data yeah so it's a really complex space in I can know more but there are costs for knowing that I didn't like any of that
how is the beer? It's good. It's how I remember it. I will mention because it's very cloudy, I, and I don't remember that about the beer last time. It's an import. Presumably, it's a little older, but I really like the. Uh, it's I say cidery. I don't know if that's accurate, but it's 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 not as heavy as some of the stuff we've drank in the past. Uh, it's definitely aromatic. It has a, a like a hint of hops, which I normally do not enjoy. But it is also uh, a little bit more fortified as an ale. This is a I don't not literal. I may I don't know. Maybe it's literal fortified. I don't know. It, this is a, an eight point six or APV or so, and so uh, that that richer alcohol flavor kind of competes with the hoppiness, and so in the end, it becomes a very very smooth, neutral, very easy to drink high APV ale. Uh, which is different than uh, my usual experience with ales. So I am quite pleased with how easy this ale is to drink. Yeah, it's high on my list as far as just all-time, lifetime experiences. I find that I am fond of this ale, which is something an ale should be exceptionally proud of because I rarely bestow my approval to ales. Well, everybody, I am really enjoying having the chance to interact with some of you and get your feedback and hear your comments. Keep those comments coming. Send us your emails. Send us your comments. Tweet at us. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. But let us know what you're thinking so that we can continue to have these peer review segments because I love talking about the things that we miss and the things that we can do better. Please remember to discuss research and struggle well. <laughs>